This episode of the Ready Room is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. This is JG Hertz for General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to the Ready Room, show number one hundred thirty-one. That touchy thing you saw in the bushes. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me this week is Drew Stewart. We'll be talking about some Star Trek news, including a new Paramount theme park featuring Star Trek coming to Spain, Oregon-based Trek Theater performing The Measure of a Man, and IO9's list of the ten times Kirk actually faced the no-win scenario. Then in the feature, we're joined by Mike Schindler and Mark Cushman to discuss the Apple and TOS season two. So let's step into the ready room. Hello, Drew. It's good to have you back on the Ready Room co-hosting with me. It's been quite a while. I was, you know, trying to decide who was going to co-host this week, and then I realized that I really had no choice because having you on the show is the will of Landrew. Indeed, it is. Joy to you, friends. <laughs> it's hard for me not to continue from there, but I'll just leave it at that. Joy to you, friends. Yeah, yeah. So, how's everything going? It's been. It has been quite a while since you have co-hosted the show with me here. It has been. Um, things have been going really good. I'm I'm excited about life and what 2014 is bringing and has brought and will rot and hath begotten. I don't know. <laughs> Are you as excited about life as the people were in the episode we're going to talk about today, the Apple, when Kurt destroyed Vol and it, it was just like new horizons opened up to them? Not Not quite at that level yet. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into news today. We only have a few news items, and the first one is something that came out this week. There is a Star Trek area coming to a theme park, the Paramount Park, in Murcia, Spain, which is 270 miles southeast of Madrid. It's oh. going to open by the end of 2015, and... I have to say that the artist renditions are quite beautiful. What do you think about this park, Landrew? Well, I'm I'm immediately disappointed because I was misreading this as Murka. I thought I thought this Murka. was coming to Murka. But, <laughs> oh, but it's coming to, to Murcia, Spain. I see. I see. Yeah. No, it's not coming to Murka. It's uh <laughs> it's gonna be in Spain. Oh. Well, I'm I'm jealous. Uh, apparently, it's it's only going to be like a section of the park, like uh, right. Uh, so it's not like a whole Star Trek park, but just a section of the park. But of course, uh, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter is just a section of that park, and it's the highlight of Universal Studios Mad Islands yeah. of Adventure, or whatever it's called. But yeah, it looks great. Like there's 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 warp core 
the warp core lights that people are gathering around for some reason. I don't know. They want like radiation <laughs> poisoning or something. Right. That's what I was thinking. Like maybe is there a safety hazard involved in gathering around this point? Maybe that's a ride. Maybe maybe you're supposed to stand close to it and wait for the perfect time to barrel roll out of the way. That would be great. The blast doors come down. Exactly. <laughs> I, but I don't know how many people can get on that ride. You know, if there are like 50 people on the ride, there are going to be 50 people trying to barrel roll underneath blast doors at the same time. It makes me a little nervous. Oh, they'll be fine. Well, there is the warp speed coaster, which will reach exciting heights and speeds and include an underground portion, which of course naturally will be a wormhole. Of course. And several loops. I... I want to be there. I, I'm not sure if you ever went, but uh, uh, Kings Island in Cincinnati, uh, no. it was owned by Paramount for a while. Uh-huh. And so you could go there, and it used to be owned by Hanna-Barbera, so there'd be like uh, uh, Scooby-Doo and the Flintstones walking around. But once it got bought out by Paramount, they kept the Hanna-Barbera stuff, but they also added Paramount things, which... To be fair, there aren't very many Paramount properties, but there would be Klingons in full battle gear walking around, you know, for picture opportunities and, you know, Starfleet officers with their phasers and stuff. And it was the coolest thing in the world. There weren't any rides. There was maybe like a like a section that you could go in that had like replicas of the bridge. I don't remember all that much because it was a long time ago when I was really little. But I do remember distinctly Klingons in full battle garb just walking around like what blah <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty cool i was going to ask you with the hanna-barbera stuff if they had muttley from wacky racers running around and every time like you stood in line for two hours and then you get there and then they say sorry the line's closed and then you turn and muttley is there and he goes <laughs> right in your face <laughs> I, I don't recall that i don't recall that at all it could be it's possible yeah that sounds cool, though. You get your photo taken. Plus, then, you know, if there was a security breach, it would be just like Deep Space Nine, just like Homefront Paradise Lost. The soldiers would already be in the park. Yes. They would just swap their phasers for phase rifles so they look more intimidating. <laughs> well, you know, this warp speed coaster here, have you been to, at Disneyland, they have Pooh's Honey Hunt. And now I've, I've, been on that ride in the U.S. and it was a converted ride where they took one of the old rides and they like cleaned out the building and they put this Pooh's Honey Hunt in there. Mm-hmm. But the one that we have here in Tokyo was actually built from scratch and it's much more high tech than the one I rode in the U.S. And there's this one room that you go in and it's it's like the dream sequence that Winnie the Pooh has where he yeah. sees the heffalumps and the woozles and everything. I'm picturing here that when you go through the underground portion, they have something similar, but the prophets are speaking to you and the prophets are <laughs> showing you all these visions. You are the Chris. <laughs> That's right. You are of Bajor. Wait, yes. what? How do you know my name? <laughs> so that, that, that could be cool. Uh, other things about this, it's going to have the the park itself, I guess, is going to have condos, office buildings, hotels, malls, casino, convention center, gardens, nightlife, dining area, exhibition hall, just everything that you can think of. I don't know how much of that is going to be 
in the actual Star Trek area itself. But the area where Star Trek is going to be is called Plaza Futura. And it is going to have a large futuristic square. It's going to include a Starfleet Spain recruiting center and a 3D simulator ride, which I believe is separate from the warp speed coaster that we've been talking about. Weird. I mean, I'm all for it. I wish that I could get my company to to have like a company retreat in Spain. Yeah. And just so I happen to have it at that park, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, they, they wouldn't go for that. And uh, I'm sure that if I ever went to Spain personally, that, that uh, uh, my wife loves Star Trek, but I don't think she'd be like, yes, let's go exclusively to go to this theme park. She might, though. Well, she, hmm. she might, especially when we find out what else is going to be in the Paramount Park. You know, maybe maybe they'll maybe you. they'll have uh, speaking of things we've been talking about on Standard Orbit. Maybe they'll have like uh, all the main characters' heads in jars, <laughs> like in Futurama. Yeah, yeah, maybe that'd be nice. I mean, not nice. That'd be weird. <laughs> Might be okay with that. Okay, that could be interesting. Yes. So the question I wanted to ask you about this park, Drew, though, and this is something that Paramount's doing that. I don't really know how I feel about it, is that aesthetically, this is all based on the Abrams verse. It's all the new Trek. And I did notice that. A lot of things that you see coming out these days are based on the new Trek, Abrams verse feel. And I don't know if this is the most effective way to actually market Star Trek. How do you feel about it? Well, it depends. I mean... You know more about the international audience than I do. Uh, I mean, if they were to build one in Tokyo, would they would they not go with the new with the new they JJ would. verse over TOS or DS Nine? They would. In fact, they they're trying right now to once again. They've tried many times over the years, and they've never really been successful to raise interest in Star Trek in Japan. And one thing that they're doing right now is they're launching a new website that it's sort of like StarTrek.com, but it's specifically for Japan. It's not as as robust as StarTrek.com, but uh, they've launched the site and they've put out a printed magazine book to give you the basic background of Star Trek and to use that to... It, it goes along with the launch of this new site. Okay. And what they've done there is that although they've given you background to the original series and TNG, you know, and, and all five of the prime universe series. I don't think there's any animated stuff in there. Uh-huh. So, so only the five live action, it's heavily slanted towards the Abrams verse. And overall, I would call the whole thing an Abrams verse piece. And I think that is sort of the, they're playing off of into darkness, which did double the box office in Japan from, 2009. 2009 made about $5 million in Japan. Into Darkness made about $10 million, which of course is still nothing, right? Right. They did did double the take, and so they're playing off of that. Huh. I I assume that the... I assume that the new movies are doing better than than the original movies. I mean, they don't have Netflix. They don't have all the shows in Spain and on Netflix and stuff. I imagine that it's more um, the movie. It, it, it's more fresh in their mind. I mean, if I were designing a park, I would make it basically Deep Space Nine. Yeah. At, the, at this point in my viewing. <laughs> 
you know, the other thing here is that this is a Paramount Park. Paramount owns the rights to the film franchise of Star Trek, whereas CBS go. owns the rights to the television franchise. And so they may have no choice but to go Abrams first. Yeah. I mean, if they tried to do something next generation, then they'd probably have to share the rights with CBS. And CBS yeah, may have said no. Thing. Yeah. Is this the same park that was, there was a some king? This no. This is a different one. This is different. Yeah. That was being built. Was it in Jordan? Because it was King. Abdullah, yeah, that's it. I believe it was doing it. So, and I, I haven't seen an update on that one in a while. We need to look into that. So anyway, this is being built. Uh, if we have any listeners in Spain, we would love to hear your thoughts on this and what we've been talking about here. You know, is the Abrams verse what connects with, with locals there? Um, and, and not just Spain, you know, I know we have listeners all around in Europe and, I'd be curious to hear, you know, what, what you think about this. First of all, the fact that it's coming to Spain. And secondly, the fact that it's based on the Abrams verse. But we'll put a link in the show notes over to StarTrek.com where they've got lots and lots of, of artist renderings. So you can see what's on there. All right. Well, let's go on, Drew, to the next story. This one I found in a small local paper online website lanetoday.com from Eugene, Oregon. And this is about a, a Eugene-based theater group called Trek Theater. And they were inspired by the much better known group from Portland, Trek in the Park, to rewrite episodes of The Next Generation is what they're doing and perform them on stage. And they're going to be performing The Measure of a Man coming up in March. And that sounds, that's going to be a tough episode. Um, uh, most of Measure of a Man comes from the dramatic performances, and right. I can't imagine that somebody, you know, the, look at Pinocchio; his strings are cut, not being funny in a, in a live scenario. But yeah, it could be really cool. I'm. It could be. I'd be interested to hear if anybody goes out there. Eugene, Oregon. We've got people in Oregon, I'm sure. Well, we do. We definitely do. Uh, so I I think it could be interesting to see. It is it is an episode that lends itself well to stage, of course, because of, of the setting. But I, I think what you're getting at, right, is the weight of the personalities, you know, the, yes. the passion of Patrick Stewart's delivery is is so key to it. So... It would be interesting to see what they do with it and, and to what extent they've rewritten it to fit yeah. the stage as Unfortunately, well. Unfortunately, the article only goes into the original writing, like Snodgrass's yeah. Uh, yeah. writing and how, you know, she was inspired by George R. R. Martin to write the script and and then, but it doesn't talk about the rewriting or the group or anything. I'd be really interested right. to hear how, how does one rewrite a television show to perform it on the stage for free? You know, how, how do you, how do you sort that out? And I, mm -hmm. there's a lot of questions. There are a lot of questions. And as I was researching this, like you said, the article doesn't really give us much background behind this group's take on the episode. And even another article about them on the same website from maybe spring last year, I think it was, but it was 
talk about how the group came together. So the group was founded by Aaron Brains and Christopher Anglin. And as I mentioned a minute ago, they were inspired by Portland's Trek in the Park group. And and they decided that they wanted to perform TNG episodes because that's what they were most familiar with on stage. And they're currently in the second half of their first season right now. But even that article didn't really give so much background to this group. Now, they do have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Trek Theater. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to go to find out more. But even there, like I still didn't quite get a feel. And and I was looking around and I didn't find a truly dedicated website to this group that like really gave you the background to them and really gave you what they were doing. And so it would be very interesting to find out more because I, I love the concept and just you know, it's just like us with podcasting, you know, I mean, we do this because we have this passion for the material and it's our way of exploring it. And it's our way of, of expressing our thoughts on it and what it means to us. And that's the same thing that they're doing on the stage. And, um, I have to grab them sometime. That's what we need to do. We need to have them do an interview, really find out more about their background and what brought together Trek theater. So, so Trek in the park does TOS. Mm-hmm. And and Trek Theater does TNG, so that leaves DS9 next. I'm, right. I'm sitting here trying to think of of episodes that would lend themselves to the stage, and I'm I'm seeing uh, in the pale moonlight. Yeah, you know we've got Cisco talking to the uh, talking to the audience, maybe right instead of to the computer. Uh, of course, you could also do uh, uh, Move Along Home. I was going to say that. I know you were going to. I wanted to jump Put on up the that. hopscotch board there on the stage. I mean, it's perfect. <laughs> There's your wormhole. You could get audience members. <laughs> yes. You could give drinks to audience members and have them be all the people in the party and move along home. And then the actors themselves have to decide whether they should actually drink it or not. <laughs> yes. I'd be up for that. That would be... Trek in the tunnel. That's going to be DS9 <laughs> in there. So, so anyway, this is going to be taking place at Paper Moon Studios, five forty three Blair Boulevard in Eugene, and the performances are going to be held on Saturdays, March first, March eighth, and March fifteenth. There will be two performances each night: one starting at seven thirty p.m. And another starting at 10. And best of all, attendance is free. So we know that this is not a DS9 thing because Quark would definitely charge you something for admission. That's true. And that that's this Saturday, is it not? March 1st? Yes, that's right. The first one will be coming up this Saturday. So any of the next three Saturdays, if you're there around Eugene, you can drop by and check out the performance. Cool. All right. So let's go on. And Landry, this is something that I bookmarked when it first was published. And you told me in the other side of the room. The other side of the room. That Mike, your co-host from Standard Orbit, sent it to you when it first came out as well on io9. This is an article called 10 Times Kirk Actually Faced the No-Win Scenario. It's written by Charlie Jane Anders. And what do you think about this, Drew? I, when Mike sent me the article, I, I responded, I just checked, I, I responded and said, uh, that looks very interesting, but it depends what your def- definition of a no-win scenario is, because right. I'd argue that half of these aren't no-win scenarios, and right. I can think of other examples that would be better, 
And I think Kirk was just being using flowery language when he said that he'd never faced a no-win scenario before because there's a bunch more than just these 10. And like I said, half these 10 aren't no-win scenarios. So you think half of these 10 are not no-win scenarios? Because I think eight or nine of these 10 are not no-win scenarios. Well, I I didn't count up the number exactly, (laughs) but yeah. I think when Kirk talks about not believing in the no-win scenario, it's he's talking about himself in a situation where he cannot get out of the situation. Right. Uh, I, I, and I think that the definition that's being used here by the author of this article is the times that Kirk faced tough decisions or had to make a decision that maybe wasn't the one that he was the happiest with. Yeah. And, and describing it like that, you really, yeah. Like maybe eight or nine of these have nothing to do with it. Are we going to go through these? Well, yeah, let's go through them because I I find them very interesting. So number one, Tarsus four, this is from the conscience of the King, right? Where it goes back to the fact that when he was young, Kirk was living on Tarsus four. He saw what was happening with the executions. Uh, relief arrived, but it was too late. The executions couldn't be prevented. And as the article says, Kirk had to stand by and watch half the people on the planet being executed. Well, no, he wasn't. He wasn't the captain of a ship. He wasn't anything. He was just there. That's hardly That's a like no-win saying, scenario. It's not a no-win scenario at all. I mean, it's like, it's Drew. It's like if... If, uh, you know, some disaster happens and you happen to be in the city when the disaster happens and I say, Drew, you didn't do anything to stop that disaster from happening. Drew, that was a no-win scenario for you. It no. doesn't make any sense, right? No, no, <laughs> no. Okay. So that's number one. <laughs> so number one, nope. Scratch it off no. the list. What's number two? Number two is the USS Farragut. And that's when the the cloud from obsession uh, article says Kirk blamed himself because he hesitated briefly before firing his phaser. But in the episode, he realizes that phasers are ineffective against the creature and there wasn't anything he could have done to save the Farragut's crew. Again, this is like looking back and it being a no-win scenario. This – I don't think the author understands. The no-win scenario is because you – there is no good choice. Tarsus four, Kirk had no choice. Farragut, Kirk, no matter what choice he made, it would have been a bad choice. It's not, it's not no win because shooting at it or not shooting at it, nothing would have made a difference. It's not, it's not a decision. It's not a, it's right. not something he faced. It's, I don't, uh, a lot of this comes back to the Kobayashi Maru. So the Kobayashi Maru, situation is like you can you can save the people on the ship but you may be destroyed yourself or you can save the people on the ship maybe you get away but you have started a conflict with the klingons right or you can decide not to rescue the ship and all these people are going to die so it's like no matter what you do something bad is going to happen yeah and there's no there's no maybes about it you know that Something bad is going to happen in a no-win scenario every opportunity. Kirk firing his phaser 
there was still hope that it would have stopped things. It's not like it would have made mm-hmm. him more powerful and he knew that. That's a no-win right. scenario. Yeah. So this one I, I don't really think fits the definition either. The third one is the destruction of Vulcan in the 2009 film. The article says the entire planet Vulcan gets destroyed in the 2009 Star Trek film, despite Kirk's best efforts to save it. No. Kirk isn't in command yet when this happens, but it still takes place on his watch and he has no way to save it. Again, not any, he had no choice in any of the matter or antimatter. He he just happened to be on the ship and the ship happened to be near Vulcan when, when Nero destroyed the planet. And, right. But it's and not yes, like his lack of a decision destroyed the planet. It's, right. That's the thing. Yes, he made an effort to, you know, he got Pike to go there. He warned them this was going to happen and all. But it wasn't, you know, this isn't a situation. This is just where, like, you try to save somebody, but you can't. So it's right. not a no-win scenario situation. Okay, how about number four? Yeah, we've got a... Uh, number four is Gary Mitchell, and I. I don't think he he's wrong about this one. Yeah, we, this is the one that I think probably does fit fit fairly well. Yes, because Kirk has to make a choice. He has to make a decision yeah. between his best friend, and the ship, and or the galaxy, because yeah. who knows what happens when you let this god loose on the universe. And he has to eventually kill his friend. That's a no-win scenario. At the end of the day, he saved the universe, but he still had to kill his friend. And he did not win. Congratulations. That's a no-win scenario. Yeah, he's going to lose something either way. And also this happened, and it's directly him making the decision, right? He's in command of the ship. It is his friend. He is, is... inextricably tied to the situation that's going on and it's a personal thing for him as well so i think that one fits now the fifth one is slightly similar the salt vampire yeah the article says the episode the man trap ends with a fairly clear victory for kirk except that he wipes out the last member of an intelligent species who had been living for years without harming anyone okay well first of all that's not true that it had been living for years without harming anyone no, it it had been living off of salt that, you know, basically forcing this guy, looking like his long lost dead wife, mm-hmm. and basically forcing him to supply him with salt, and then when it when he runs out, she starts eating all the you know red shirts that it can find, and that's it's right. not the salt vampire was not. While it was maybe an innocent creature backed into a corner and, you know, doing what it could to survive, it's still not completely innocent. Which, right, yeah. Yeah. At the point, at the point that, that... Actually, Kirk doesn't even kill the creature, right? Yeah, wait a minute. McCoy has to make... It's McCoy's no-win scenario, if it's anything, and that's only because it looks like his ex-girlfriend. Well, that's an interesting point. I don't know. Could, could we say this is a no-win scenario for McCoy... Yeah, not really because slightly, but not really. It's not his ex. Ah, his ex-wife already died. <laughs> it wasn't even her fault. It was just a. It was a dilemma for McCoy. I think. Yeah, that's pretty much what he does. So yeah, salt vampire. I don't really think fits either. Um, number six, the Organians. I didn't understand this one at all. Yeah, the article says if the Organians hadn't stepped in, 
the Enterprise might have been destroyed. But then again, Kirk could have helped score a real victory against the Klingons. There are lots of episodes where Kirk outwits godlike aliens or shows them that humanity possesses greatness, but this isn't one of them. I I don't know where no one scenario comes into play here at all. No. And and it's and it's really vague. Like okay. So in Aaron and Mercy, we've got the Organians, you know, Kirk's on the planet and he tries to wage his own little war because the Organians aren't don't look interested. And then the Organians, uh, you know, appear as as blowing glowing balls of light, mm-hmm. and says nope. And Kirk says, "Oh, but there's no decision. There's no these godlike creatures say you're not going to fight the Klingons anymore." And they say, "Yes, sir, because we physically cannot fight the Klingons anymore." Yeah, I mean, the there is no decision to make here, right? The Organians force the decision on. Both Kirk and the Klingons. It's a scenario where Kirk didn't win, and maybe that's maybe that's what the author is assuming is a no-win scenario. When he Kirk doesn't win. win, you know, you might have a point there because in the one about the man trap, the author wrote the man trap ends with a fairly clear victory for Kirk. Yeah. So I think that the person writing this article is thinking that you have to have a clear victory and you put up the mission accomplished banner behind you and then <laughs> then you're <Right>. done. <laughs> no. That's not a no-win yeah. scenario. That's an I lost. The difference yeah. between no win and one loss. Well, what do you think about number seven? Okay. Edith Keeler. I can see that. Yeah. there's This one I can see. The fate of the whole future, or this girl that I love. Really, I think he made the right decision. And maybe there's not a no win, because I think wiping out the future is a bigger loss. But yeah, I can see that that's a no win. Yeah, well, on a personal level, I mean, yeah, wiping out the future would be a bigger loss than Kirk not getting the girl, right? But on a personal level, there are both things that are very important to him, and he can he cannot have both. So he has to make, it's very similar to the Gary Mitchell one. Right. right. It's, it's a person that he cares about versus the fate of, of billions of lives. So I can see that one as well. Edith Keeler. Now, uh, number eight, this is neural. This goes back to a private little war. The article says the Klingons are arming one side in a local conflict with superior, albeit still primitive, weaponry. So Kirk decides to arm his villagers with equal weaponry to level the playing field. Except, as McCoy points out, that means you're condemning this whole planet to a war that may never end. It could go on for year after year, massacre after massacre. Again, I don't see anything in here that puts Kirk into a no-win scenario because they happen across this planet. And it's a localized thing that really has nothing to do with Kirk. Right. But he has to make the, the, I mean, I can kind of see this one. He has to make the moral decision of, do I let these people get wiped out by, with these Klingon backed weapons, or do I condemn them to survive, but only because they've got the same amount of weapons? It's not, 
strictly a no-win scenario, but I can mm-hmm. see maybe where the author's coming from on this one. Or Kurt could have driven the Klingons away and gathered up all the weapons and left the people back in the state they were in before the Klingons arrived. Right, but then the Organians would have come, and that would have been a no-win <laughs> scenario again. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe so. <laughs> all right. Now, number nine is great because it's about the episode we're going to talk about in the feature today. And this is the apple, and it's about Vol. What did the article say about this one? Uh, the article says, Kirk destroys the computer, frees the people, gives them a few minutes of sex education, and then leaves, which is true. And once Kirk destroyed Vol, everything went to hell, and the people on the planet set about destroying the entire world again. In the comic... What comic? There's Spock a comic risks- that like follows up to... Uh, to the events of the Apple. Published when? I don't like remember Like the old exactly. Marvel comics in the 70s? What are we talking about? I'd have to go look that one up. I just uh, know it exists. In the comic, Spock risks his own life to recreate Val to save the planet. Because it turns out that Val was necessary and blowing him up wasn't the neat solution Kirk thought it was. So when somebody wrote this comic, uh, the power to generate the the electricity that they used to light their lights was Gene Roddenberry spinning in his grave. <laughs> These people totally need their their computer <laughs> god. Kirk was wrong to to get people out of their ignorance. <laughs> Maybe. I I do see a no win scenario in this one. No, not no. Only yeah. apparently that a comic retconned the. You know, the necessity of Vol. And that's not a no-win scenario. And it looks like Spock's the one who does the uh, risking his life for it. This one for me, I mean, it's not a no-win scenario whatsoever because uh, Kirk, those people were fine. This is one of those cases of Kirk going in and saying that, I don't like the way you're living your lives. I see that a computer is making you do it. I'm going to destroy the computer and then leave. And I hope you're ready for it because you're on your own now. And then maybe that ship that we always talk about that shadows the Enterprise that comes and cleans everything up, maybe they'll come in and fix things. Apparently they rebuild Vol and then everything's <laughs> hunky-dory. But they but they made it look comic-y this time. That doesn't... Uh, <laughs> I don't like this. I don't like this comic. I don't know. <laughs> All right. I'll have to go find that one for you, Drew. I, I, I'm sure I have it because I have a DVD that has all the old All those gold comics. keys and stuff? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'll have to find out which one this is. Maybe we'll do it on Literary Treks. <laughs> we'll have you on. We'll talk about it. All right. So we have one more on the list here. Number 10, Dramia 2. This is from the animated series. And this one says, The Enterprise crew catches a space plague in the episode Albatross and only Spock is unaffected. Surprise. I guess it's kind of like, it's kind of like Sulu in the deadly years, right? He's not affected. <laughs> so in this case, only Spock is unaffected. Kirk puts Spock in command of the ship, which is always a bad thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, only <laughs> if, only if McCoy and Scotty aren't affected by whatever it is, because they'd okay. immediately try a mutiny. Okay. So Kirk puts Spock in command of the ship, and before he leaves, he issues General Order 6. This calls for the ship to wait until the last human aboard dies, wait 24 hours, and then self-destruct. 
I, I like the fact that the the general order has a twenty four hour time period where the ship After is completely everyone is dead. Right, it's just sitting there so that anyone can come board it and strip the technology out of it. <laughs> and only the last human. So if there's right. any any I other think, kind of yeah. you know dog or maybe that plant that Sulu likes, you know, as Vulcan. long as that plant's still alive. Yeah. Beauregard. <laughs> That's its name. That's right. Or maybe even a Vulcan, you know? But but Spock's half human. So does that mean like if Spock's halfway dead? Yes. That He's only mostly happens? dead. Yeah. <laughs> He's there on the bridge. I'm not dead yet, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, it says that it then it self-destructs to prevent anyone else catching the disease. McCoy finds a cure at the last possible minute, of course, but Kirk was ready to blow up his ship and admit defeat. So the key to all of this is that Kirk was ready to blow to up not the ship win. because he could not find a cure. That's not a no-win scenario. That's Kirk almost losing. Right. Because the choice was condemn the entire galaxy to this plague or yeah. to wipe out a ship. That's not a no-win scenario. That's standard operating procedure. Right. That's like we, we, we cannot endanger the galaxy, right? That's, that's the standard destroy the ship because we cannot let it fall into enemy hands. And also. apparently everybody was going to die anyway. So blowing up the ship, I mean, 24 hours after everybody's already dead, blowing up the ship isn't going to accomplish anything. It's hardly a decision if you're all going to die anyway. Right. You're just making sure that the Klingons don't come find the ship and tow it back to Kronos. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. All right. So, so that's it. Those are the 10 items. What did we end up with? We ended up with like two and a half, maybe yeah. two that we think actually fit the no-win scenario and one was kind of maybe. But then you can look at like... uh we can look at Kirk beating the no-win scenario a whole lot more often than that. Yeah. Like Taste of Armageddon, you know, he's got these these two planets fighting and he forces them to, you know, if you're going to fight, you're going to fight with real weapons. And Either one of those choices is bad if they don't make the right choice. And that's Kirk making them have a no-win situation, I guess. But there's just these, I don't know. I don't I don't like IO9 very much and I think that that's <laughs> So so this is 10 times that Kirk forced other civilizations into no-win scenarios. Oh, that'd be easy. I, I could make <laughs> that up right now. <laughs> that would be a good one. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes if you want to go read the entire piece and if, share your thoughts with us. Tell us what you think about this list and what's actually a no-win scenario and what's not. You know, send us a message through trek.fm slash contact and let us know. We'd like to hear from you. All right. Well, that's all we're going to talk about in news today, Drew. But before we jump into the feature where we're going to talk about the Apple with Mike and our special guest, Mark Cushman, we'd like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, and that's audible.com. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks online. They have more than 150,000 titles to choose from. They have new titles coming every week, lots of them. I mean, like a hundred or more coming every week. So this number is going up all the time. They have new releases. They have bestsellers, classics. They have some of the most famous Star Trek books, some of my favorites, like Prime Directive Federation and Spock's World. And they really have something for everyone. And every week, Landrew, we choose a book to recommend to everyone. And because of the io9 article that we were just talking about, 
I decided this week to recommend the Kobayashi Maru. Sounds like a good choice. Yeah, this is by Julia Eklar. It's from the old TOS number novel series. It's mm-hmm. and and best of all, it's number forty seven oh. in that series. <laughs> <laughs> but it was published in nineteen eighty nine, and the audio version is narrated by James Dewan. Nice. I wonder if he does voices. I'm sure he does some some accents. You know, he in the books that he's narrated, he usually does Kirk fairly well. He does a fantastic Scotty. I can't imagine. Just fantastic Scotty. I don't know. That's silly. Um, you know, maybe his Uhura is not quite as good as Nichelle Nichols would do it, but, you know. He tries. He does pretty well. I mean, James Dewan was great with with voices, you know, as you know, of course. A lot of the characters, even main characters on the animated series, were all voiced by James Dewan. Yeah, if it wasn't if it wasn't like Shatner or Takei, mm-hmm. it was it was James Dewan. Yeah, and the and the guest characters in those episodes were very frequently voiced by James Dewan. So uh, he is a, a great narrator. Well, the Kobayashi Maru, of course, we all know what it is, but in terms of the book. Uh, for James Kirk, it was a challenge that defined him as a leader. For Chekhov, it meant a struggle against his own personality. For Sulu and Scotty, it was a matter of the spirit and a second chance. Now the Starfleet officers look back on those youthful days. Their shuttlecraft is drifting helplessly in space, which sounds a little bit like Shuttlepod 1 on Enterprise, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I wonder if they've got some good um, Kentucky bourbon in there to drink <laughs> or whatever that was they were downing in Shuttlepod 1. But uh, they're drifting helplessly in space. Apparently, they're all crammed in this one shuttle, I guess. Those Sharing with each other. <laughs> they're kind of big. Maybe it's like a runabout. <laughs> Sharing with each other the painful, often fierce lessons of their Kobayashi Maru. Each man struggles to tap his inner strength and to overcome the most desperate situation of their careers. So it's basically a reflection of when they each took the Kobayashi Maru. And that's kind of interesting, right? Because... We know what happened with Kirk. We got to see Savick taking the Kobayashi Maru, but we haven't really gotten to see all of our different characters take it, but we know they all had to take it because it's just something that you do at the Academy. I guess. I thought it was something more for command. I guess, you know, I mean, that's a good question, right? Do you have to be on the command track? I always feel like it's something that everyone has to do because you never know when you're going to be the last person. Okay. And you're the one who's going to have to make the decisions. And, I, and it's a character-building exercise. And it's it's also preparing cadets for the realities of being out there and the fact that, you know, you really could face, even though Kirk doesn't believe in them, you really could face a no-win scenario. So I, I like to think that it's something that all cadets have to go through. Well, it doesn't, I mean, the book sounds like it's just focuses on Kirk, Chekhov, Sulu, and Scotty, who... I mean, except for Scotty, they're all command, and Scotty is routinely put in command. He's, what, third or fourth in line? Yeah. So uh, maybe it is more of a a command thing, and Scotty has like a dual major. I can imagine Scotty having a dual major. Scotty has a dual major, yeah. Well, you know, I guess you haven't read the the follow-up to this, the Kobayashi Maru Part 2 that's set in the Abrams verse, and it's all about Keenzer having to actually t- do the Kobayashi Maru himself. And he wins without cheating somehow. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Turns out that the um, th- the way to rescue the ship is uh, not through words, but through expression. It's just how you stare <laughs> blankly at someone. The Klingons back down when you just stare blankly at them. You get the they, weird, they go, pokey eyes. Weird, pokey eyes, right? And then, and then Kor goes, all right, I won't destroy you today. <laughs> all right. Well, if you want to read this book, you can do it listening to it narrated by James Dewan, and you can do it absolutely free. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up for Audible. You can get any audiobook of your choice absolutely free when you sign up. So it could be the Kobayashi Maru right here or anything that you want to listen to. And then you get two credits for the month. That's how Audible works every month. You can pick any book you want for one credit most of the time. There's a couple of weird ones that are two for some reason, but I don't run across those very often at all anymore. And every 30 days... You get new credits, and it's actually kind of hard to choose what you're going to listen to because there are so many books there. But by doing so, you'll be helping us keep the radio room coming to you every week. And uh, if you decide after your trial that you don't want to stick with Audible, though, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that audiobook. That's absolutely free. It's yours to keep. So, uh, so nothing to lose, but a lot to gain. And uh, go try it out today. That's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank Audible for helping us keep the show coming to you every week. Computers controlling humanoid populations is a common theme in TOS, as is the association between these situations and the worship of God here on Earth. In the Apple, the two were brought together in a most obvious way, as Kirk and his landing party find themselves in the Garden of Eden. And today we're going to welcome back our friend Mark Cushman, who was with us recently to talk about a mock time. Of course, author of These Are the Voyages, the book series about TOS, and today we're going to take an inside look at this very dangerous trip to paradise in the Apple. Mark, welcome back to the Ready Room. Hey guys, how are you doing? Doing very well. And with us this time, Drew's co-host from Standard Orbit and co-host of Commentary Trek Stars, Mike Schindler's back. Mike, welcome back. Hey, how's it going? Good. Glad to have you guys both here again to talk about TOS this week. And Mark, last time you were on the show, you mentioned that story about the woman back in the 60s who was watching a mock time and was really upset about the the theme of the show, you know, and the talk about the fish swimming upstream. And there was an entire episode about the point of year guy's sex drive. I have to think that this story about 
the Garden of Eden and kind of a, a computer controlling this population uh, couldn't have gone over all that well in the 1960s. It, uh, it didn't draw as bad of a response letter-wise as a muck time did. And when I say bad, I don't mean the majority of the letters were, were bad for a muck time. I just mean they got some angry letters, and I printed one of them in uh, These Are the Voyages Book 2, for Season 2, for muck time, for this housewife who was angry because it was the first episode they showed of Season 2, and her teenagers were watching TV with her. And here's this story about the sex drive of a Vulcan, and comparing him to a, a salmon swimming upstream that needs to spawn, and the whole bit. And she was very, very offended by that, that approach to the uh, story, uh, and as NBC feared she would be. That's why the NBC censors were always so uh, worried about what Star Trek was up to and what Gene Roddenberry was up to with each script and each episode they would do. Uh, the Apple was an interesting one because the thing that um, Gene Kuhn really fell in love with for that particular episode was the concept that Kirk plays the part of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So it's not just a trip to the Garden of Eden, but it's taking the hero of our show and having him really be the serpent, in a sense. He's the guy who's going to try to drive the people away from their god. And uh, so, of course, NBC was a little worried about that. They were a little worried about everything that Star Trek did, it seemed. Yeah, it's it's interesting that it's a common theme. And I, and I guess I should ask you, Mark, because you were watching these when you know as a teenager when they were airing how you took it because i i always take tos themes in tos a lot you know there's a lot of this machine is being worshipped like a god and we we want to break societies free of of this control that's over them and, and i think in gene roddenberry's view of the future where you know religion has been vanquished that there is this sort of, you talk about Kirk being the serpent here in the Garden of Eden, but there is this sort of feeling that one of our goals in going out in the galaxy and exploring and meeting other people is to show them the right way. And if we find that they are following what we would typically think of, I guess, as a religious uh, view of the world, as opposed to a humanistic one, that we're going to show them that's not how you should do it. You know, even McCoy has right. that that discussion here in this episode about you know Spock tells him, look, that you might not agree with this, but it's a viable society. It works for them. McCoy says, well, it doesn't work for me, and I feel that's kind of the view that you get a lot in Star Trek in, in TOS that we don't agree with it. Here's the right way to do it. So, although in this story, it is very transparent because they do make the the point that this is the Garden of Eden, and then Kirk really is you know, the, the serpent here, but how did you, how did you feel watching TOS when it was in its first run? Because you're one of the, one of, unlike us, you have the benefit of not having been influenced by later Star Trek when you saw right, these episodes. Right. Did you get that I, feeling I, that that was the message going on like we do now? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, every week, not just with that episode, because, you know, that they had done that once before with, uh, well, they'd done it a couple of times before, but, right. but uh, Return of the Archons yeah. was the same story. And there's even a lot of memos going back and forth between the staff members as they were writing and making the Apple that Dorothy Fontana and Bob Justman in particular had a problem with the fact that it was too much like Return of the Archons 
from a, a point of view of theme, not not physical action or a visual look, but from a theme, from the idea behind the story. Mm -hmm. And they were bothered about that. And one, and, but what Gene Kuhn loved about it was it had things in it that the other one didn't have. In the other one, uh, in Archon, it was, uh, you know, with Landrieu, it was uh, uh, a computer. They didn't know their society was being ruled by a computer. They, they thought they were worshiping a man or the, uh, the spirit of a man. And it was really a computer that was behind it. And, uh, and the interesting point in that episode is that people had to have, uh, they had to let the steam out, in a sense. If you're going to be an, an organized, uh, calm, uh, peaceful society, then, uh, you know, once a week or once a month or whatever, you're going to have to have a festival and just go crazy and go out and beat each other and rape each other and, and pillage and, and everything to get it out of your system because mm -hmm. we humans have these emotions that have to be satisfied. We have our primal urges. So that was an interesting statement in that episode. And Gene Kuhn said, well, with the Apple, we're doing something entirely different here. That, uh, that you know, the people don't know it's a machine, but they certainly, it doesn't appear to be a man. It doesn't appear to be one of them. Uh, it's more like an island god, you know, a serpent's head. But they have to feed it. So these people are being used by uh, this machine to bring it its food and allow it to exist. And in, in turn, it gives them a warm climate and uh, keeps them safe and so forth. And they don't even have to procreate because nobody dies on this planet until Kirk messes it up for them. And now, now they're going to have to suffer and struggle like the rest of us. Uh, but so it, it was different than Return of the Archons. But to get exactly to your point and your question, yes, uh, every every week when I would watch Star Trek, and I was 13, 14, 15 when I was watching it on NBC, uh, it was doing things no other show was doing. No other show was daring to tell these kind of stories. And if you watch an old episode of, of Bonanza or Rifleman or or I Dream a Genie or whatever, they're entertaining, and but they don't really make statements about the human condition and about society and uh, or making commentary on things that were in the news at that time, like the Vietnam War and so forth. And in the 1960s, of course, that's when you were experiencing uh, machines replacing men uh, on a grand scale. And computers were just starting to come in. And people were becoming obsolete in certain areas because of these machines. So Gene Roddenberry had a, had a big agenda that he wanted to tell these types of stories. And, and one other thing real quick about that, too, is Gene Roddenberry believed that we should always uh, question authority, that man does not have the wisdom to rule other men uh, without certain restrictions. Uh, he, he liked the American system because the president has to answer to Congress and, and so on. But uh, dictatorships and things of that nature, he was very much against it. And that's why he, he bumped heads with NBC all the time, because he didn't like somebody who was a, given a position, uh, like the censor, who was going to make decisions about what America wants to see. Uh, so he was an ex-cop, he was an ex-military man, a pilot in World War II, and so forth. So he had experienced a lot of things in his life where you had to take orders from people who really weren't qualified to give orders. And so as a writer, he wanted to tell these stories where we could buck the system and show people that we should not blindly follow a person 
or especially a machine. Well, you were saying, uh, I guess it was off mic, that, that this episode was not very uh, well liked by the creative team. What what in particular do they feel uh, didn't live up to their expectations or what, what were their original plans for it, which didn't make it onto the screen? Yeah, we, we talked about that before you uh, we, we, we started the, the show. Uh, so we'll, we'll mention it now that it may surprise some of your listeners, but uh, the creative staff did not like this episode. Uh, well, Gene Kuhn did. He struggled with it terribly, but he was determined he wanted to make it because he liked the theme and he liked the statement that was being made in this episode. And he felt it was different enough from Return of the Archons and it was valid to do. Uh, the others didn't like it. Uh, Robert Justman and Dorothy Fontana, in particular, objected to this episode in their memos and said, "Let's let's cut it off at story, and then let's cut it off at first draft, and let's let's pay off the writer and let's move on to something better and something different." And they had a lot of problems with it. And even Gene Roddenberry saw the similarities because Return of the Archons was his story idea, and uh, that he gave to Boris Silverman to write. And so he was saying, you've got to change this up if you're going to do it. And they had just done an episode called Friday's Child. And they said, well, that one dealt with the tribal culture, and now this one's dealing with the tribal culture. And, uh, and Archons dealt with the machine ruling people, and now this one does. And so they, they didn't feel it was different enough. The guy, you're really going to be amazed when you read these memos, because the guy who really gave the apple working over to make it become what it is from where it started was Robert Justman. And uh, his memos, he really gets to his stride during season two, which is why he became the co-producer during season three. Because his job in season one and season two was, was to realize these scripts on set. He was in charge of the production, not in developing the scripts. But his memos were so good and his ideas were so valid that by the time they got to the third year, they said, well, we need to put you up as a co-producer and let you start developing scripts too. And he really gave that one a working over. The way that uh, Max Ehrlich wrote it, um, the, the first um, the, the story and the first draft script and the second draft script, uh, first of all, uh, Val was a building so there's a, such a funny memo from Robert Justman where he's saying, I don't care how scarred up this building is. I think the audience is going to laugh when they watch Kirk trying to have conversations with the building. <laughs> and inside the building is this computer, obviously. Uh, but he's standing outside this building talking to Val. <laughs> and there was this one point in the script where the writer wrote uh, that, that uh, Val reacts to what Kirk said, and Bob Justman in his memo said, I'm sitting here trying to imagine how a building is going to react to what our Captain Kirk says. It opens a window. <laughs> <laughs> so it was his idea. He said, maybe we should get rid of the building idea, and maybe we should think of those islands back in, in the Pacific and, and go with uh, something like a... Uh, a dragon or, or something and, and uh, do that. And, and so it was his idea to go in that direction. So at the time that Val was a building, the people themselves were still the same tribal culture that they are in the final episode? 
Yeah, they they uh, they started off a little bit more like um, uh, the culture that you see in Friday's Child, and okay. Dorothy Fontana put a stop to that. She wrote some memos and said, "I wrote Friday's Child, and you're kind of whipping <laughs> me off here. Yeah. So let's do something different." And Roddenberry was a little upset that they kept uh, having these these people that were too much like humans. And he said, come on, out there in the universe, we've got to keep, we've got to run across people who don't look like us. So Gene Kuhn came up with the idea that they'd have little antennae sticking out of their necks, and somebody else came up with the idea that they'd have white hair and, and copper skin and try, yeah, to make, try to make them look a little different. Uh, so it just went through this evolution to become what it was because it didn't have a lot of that in there. And in the early drafts, too, uh, Val uh, would uh, was firing uh, energy bolts at these people, uh, like phasers. And it was Bob Justman who came up with the idea that, uh, let's make it lightning bolts. He's supposed to be a god, and god right. should throw lightning bolts. Yeah. So again, you get to see it evolve into the script that it became. And it was mostly from the, the staff. Uh, the freelancers, by the time these scripts were rewritten, maybe 20% of the dialogue, if, if they were lucky, came from the guy who got the screen credit. Usually most of the dialogue was written by Gene Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana, sometimes Roddenberry, uh, certainly Roddenberry during the first season, but during the second season, Gene Kuhn, Dorothy Fontana, with a lot of notes from Bob Justman kind of pointing them in the right direction. So, so at this point in time, um, Roddenberry had stepped back a little bit and, and Kuhn was really the guy running the show? Yeah, uh, Gene, uh, re Gene rewrote the first half of the first season. Almost every word that you hear in the Corbinite Maneuver and Balance of Terror and What Are Little Girls Made Of and Dagger of the Mine and all those scripts were written by Gene Roddenberry. Uh, John D.F. Flack wrote a couple. John D.F. Flack actually did uh, the script for Mud's Women, even though you don't see his name on the screen. But he wrote that script, and uh, he did uh, a lot of the rewriting on Miri. Uh, but Gene Roddenberry did the final rewrites on all those first uh, 13, 14, 15 episodes of the first season. Uh, so almost all the dialogue that you're hearing came from Gene Roddenberry. Uh, because Star Trek hadn't started airing yet, and nobody knew how these characters were supposed to talk other than Gene Roddenberry and, to a lesser extent, John D.F. Black. So they had to do the dialogue rewrites. Well, by season two, Roddenberry had burned out. And so he wasn't rewriting as many scripts, and he wasn't contributing any original scripts, in case you wondered why there aren't any scripts written by him during that year other than the rewrite of A Private Little War and the rewrite of Return to Tomorrow, which he didn't even get a screen credit for as the writer, but he wrote it. Uh, but uh, it was Gene Kuhn who was just, just rewriting everything, and, and he would hand some of them off to Dorothy Fontana, and say, I'm, re I'm rewriting these six, you take these couple. And she would go off, and she did the rewrite of Cat's Paul and The Changeling and uh, a couple others. Uh, but it was mostly Gene Kuhn. Uh, he was just uh, producing scripts like you, can't, you cannot imagine. And in one day, he would do um, rewrites of three or four different scripts that were coming up to go into production. So he would do a rewrite in the morning on The Apple, and then he would switch gears, and he'd be rewriting Mirror Mirror. And then he would, and before he would go home, he would be doing a rewrite on the Doomsday Machine, and and so forth. 
And it was all coming out of just one or two people, all these scripts. I'm curious about one thing that, and whether or not there was any mention of this in any memos going back and forth. Uh, we know, of course, Star Trek fans are accustomed to in the next generation that the Enterprise D can separate itself. And the saucer can come off. And I think right. some fans don't realize that the original Enterprise had that capability as well. It was supposed to have that capability. But of course, right. they couldn't do that with the budget. This is an episode where Kirk actually does say in the episode, he tells Scotty, you know, if you have to get rid of the nacelles and just take the main part of the ship right. and, and get away. And I do know that at one point in the writing of this, they wanted to have an emergency saucer separation. Was there any discussion about that, uh, yeah. about them and trying Bob, to do Bob it? Just, Bob Justman had a hard time. <laughs> Bob <laughs> Justman would say, uh, and, and this is the point where you go find yourself a new associate producer. <laughs> you just can't do it. And they did keep the line in the script, uh, but it, but you have to really listen closely and think about it to realize what was just said. Yeah. Uh, but but it was in the show the show Bible. You know, it was in there right from the first season when Matt Jeffries designed the Enterprise. He purposely put the uh, the nuclear reactor engines up there on these big pods out there because he thought that it has to be separated. Because what if one of those things is is going to blow? Then they need to be able to push a button and just let that thing drift off into space and get away from it. So the the reason the Enterprise was designed the way it was in these three different sections, or four different sections if you count both of those, is, is that uh, anything could be jettisoned. And they talk about that in Court Martial. And then they talk about it in The Apple. So they made reference to it. They just never had the money to actually show it to us. So it wasn't just going to be the saucer which separated. It was going to be the nacelles just flew off. Yeah, yeah. If the saucer separated, all they would have would be impulse power. Mm -hmm. they, they could go on that. And so uh, they never had to do that. We did see that in one of the Star Trek movies, finally. And it crash landed like the Jupiter two and lost in space, but uh, <laughs> uh, it was always uh, in there. They had all these ideas right from the get go. It was just it took you know a couple decades and a couple different series before they could start showing us some of these things that they had already thought of. Their imaginations had already come up with all this way back in the mid nineteen sixties. You mentioned the similarity to Lost in Space there. And, you know, there was that line where, where Data goes, danger, danger, Will Riker. And they cut that because they said it was just too similar to Lost in Space and they didn't want to yeah. go there. And Gene Roddenberry was very concerned about this. You know, there were really only two <laughs> science fiction space shows on TV. Yeah. And it was Lost in Space and Star Trek. And nobody had ever done any before then. Well, you know, in the 1950s, you had a kiddie show, you know, uh, uh, Tom... Corbin's Space Cadet, that type of thing. But uh, there really hadn't been any network, big network uh, science fiction shows. You'd had The Outer Limits, which was an anthology. The Twilight Zone was an anthology. Voice of the Bomb of the Sea eventually became a science fiction, but it didn't start off as a science fiction. It was more of an espionage show and, and so forth, an adventure at the bottom of the sea. And then it became kind of a monster thing as it went along. But it was pretty much Star Trek and, and, and Lost in Space. That was it. And so Roddenberry was very, very protective, and so was Stan Robertson at NBC. A lot of his memos, which you'll see in book two, uh, that he objected to because he said, I think this is getting a little too close to lost in space territory. And one of those episodes was the Doomsday Machine. 
the idea of a giant planet eater coming into the galaxy and chewing up planets, to him, felt kind of lost and spacious, even though lost in space never did anything even close to that. But he felt it was something that would have been more suitable for that show. He didn't like the hand coming out of space and grabbing the Enterprise <laughs> and who mourns for the Adonis. He, yeah. said, he said, that belongs on lost in space. Wow. And, and it was him, Dan Robertson, who got them to change the script so it said that it's not living tissue. It's an energy field. Yeah. Which was a nice fix. So a lot of times they would they would actually come up with nice stuff because NBC made them. Now NBC didn't come up with the solutions. We talked in the last time we talked, we talked about the uh, uh, the Vulcan mind meld came about because in Dagger the Mind they were supposed to be hypnotizing Van Gelder, and NBC had a rule about you can't hypnotize anybody on TV because the audience might get hypnotized. So they came up with the Vulcan mind meld. Well, they came up with uh, a lot of things because NBC said no, and they had to find a way to get around it. Uh, Bob Justman, he didn't want to do the Doomsday Machine because of the price tag. And, uh, but the problem with the, the Apple wasn't so much money. Uh, it was, although he was worried, Justman was worried about the amount of optical effects and special effects with, with the lightning bolts and, and everything else going on. But it was mainly about, uh, he felt it was familiar territory, and, um, and he thought the script was silly. And uh, that's why they kept working on the script to try to get some of the silliness out. But Gene Kuhn loved the idea of not only man serving a machine, but he loved the idea of the Enterprise landing party being treated like an infection mm -hmm. by a planet. And a planet even though Val's pulling the strings, it seems like everything on this planet's trying to kill the landing party and all those red shirts that die in the apple, stepping on a rock and getting blown up, getting shot by thorns from a plant, getting hit by a lightning bolt, and on and on. You know, So it's, this planet is treating this landing party like an infection. And that was the other concept Gene Kuhn just fell in love with about this story. So even though he was getting a lot of resistance from his staff, he was the boss, and he said, I'm going to do this, and these are the reasons I want to do it. And it's all in his memos. We get to hear his voice. We get to hear, really get to know Gene Kuhn in book two with his long memos and, and his reasons for wanting to do certain episodes, and the apple was one he just wanted to do. So was he happy with the finished product? You know, um, yes, he was. And that's why I got a, a repeat on NBC. Uh, because Star Trek decided which episodes would be repeated, not the network. And the Apple was repeated, while some superior episodes like Friday's Child and uh, Bread and Circuses and Obsession were not given repeats. Uh, but that one, uh, Gene Kuhn really, really liked it. He liked the concept. He liked uh, a lot of the, the, the visuals that they were able to pull off in that episode. And uh, so he... Uh, he got behind that. And Bob Justman, even though he fought it and hated the first drafts of the scripts, uh, he ended up being okay with the episode at the end of the day because he influenced so much of the story. And that was very satisfying to him as the nuts and bolts producer to be able to have more of a creative hand in an episode. Dorothy Fontana never liked it and to this day doesn't like it. You mentioned getting the silliness out of it. I, so they were satisfied with the, for me, one of the silly elements of it, it the story itself is not 
silly, but the the costume design of the of the natives yeah. really pulls me out of the story quite a lot. But yeah. was there an evolution of that? I mean, we talked about earlier how they were more like the the society in Friday's Child initially when Vol was going to be a building, but then they they had to pull them, I guess, in this direction. And I can kind of see, you know, we talk about Vol. Once Vol is the cave, we talk about it being more like an island culture. I could picture, you know, ancient cultures worshiping volcanoes, for example, and, and what those tribes might be like. I guess that's why they went in that direction, but it it still feels like it has a, at least for a modern audience anyway, a bit of a silliness element. Well, I can tell you the actors hated it because those uh, that body paint was really itchy. And they had to keep it on all day, and they had to go to the commissary. At, at Desilu, wearing the, the, those costumes, and, and, <laughs> and, and their heads would be so itchy under those wigs and that, that copper paint. And uh, did you recognize David Soul in there from Starsky and Hutch as one of the ones who's painted copper? A very, very young David <laughs> ah, Soul. Now that you mention yeah. that, yeah. yeah. He's the one who is, has the little love scene with uh, one of the, the girls there. That, that uh, They're imitating what they saw Chekhov. And, oh, uh, that's him, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's David Soule, who would grow up to be in uh, Here Comes the Brides, and then after that, Starsky and Hutch, and and uh, and then he was uh, oh he, oh he was also in the TV series Casablanca. He played the uh, Humphrey Bogart character in there. So that was David Soule in one of his first appearances. Look, next time you see him, you, you'll get a kick out of it. Uh, well, you know, Gene Kuhn described it this way in one of his memos. He described them as humanity before the fall, man before the fall before the snake, before mm -hmm. they get corrupt. Before the Kirk. Kill. Before the Kirk. <laughs> uh, yeah, before they learn to kill, before they have any yeah. sin. They're innocent. And and when Kirk leaves, they're no longer innocent. They've learned to kill. Uh, they've learned about sex, God forbid. And, uh, and, and they're all laughing, and it's all cheerful at the end of the episode. But you know it's not going to stay that way. These men are going to be hitting each other over the head with sticks to try to steal each other's women. They're going to become like us. And Kuhn loved that. He, he loved that there was that message. He, in in the, a couple of the memos, it says, he says, I love the idea of Kirk playing Satan. Now, is there any mention in any of the memos of the cleanup ship that follows behind the Enterprise? <laughs> that every time that they destroy society, this, yeah. these are the, the diplomats who put it back together? In a way, there is. Uh, not in those words, uh, but Bob Justman, uh, throughout book two, uh, you'll see him write quite a few memos to Gene Kuhn about this very subject, about here we go again. And I think there might even be one, the one I'm, I'm kind of quoting right now is from the Apple. He says, here we go again, where Captain Kirk is coming in and basically breaking the rules. This man should be court-martialed for what he's doing here. And, uh, and, and so you, you said, Gene... Coon, Mr. Coon, you came up with the prime directive. That was your invention, not Gene Roddenberry. Why do you keep trying to break it? Well, what happened is Gene Coon came up with this beautiful concept of the prime directive, but then he realized that it was counterproductive to telling a good story. Yeah. No, uh, because it's more fun if you can watch Kirk mess with people's cultures <laughs> and try to, <laughs> try to turn them into America. He's trying to spread the American way throughout outer space. Yeah, and Western well, civilization through outer space. That's why we we have this theory here at Trekka Film that there is a ship that shadows the Enterprise at all times, <laughs> just to clean up after Kirk. Yes, <laughs> that's great. I think there, well, there needed to be. <laughs> <laughs>
But you mentioned Kirk, yeah, telling them that you're going to like this better. He really goes out of his way towards the end of that episode to say, you know, you're going to have this and you're going to love it. It's going to be great. And then, you know, you can do that touchy thing that you saw in the bushes over there. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. He He's really excited about what he's done to this planet. Well, you know, that's what I love about Kirk. And that's what I love about William Shatner's interpretation of Kirk uh, is he's uh, he believes that they would love it because Kirk always wins. Kirk loves to gamble. He loves mm-hmm. to take chances. He loves to compete. I mean, that's his character. He's not a perfect man. He's a flawed man, big time. I mean, we, you know, he's he's the type of guy you would follow in a in a charge up a hill. But I don't think you'd want to spend a lot of time around Kirk. He'd always be trying to steal your woman from you and outdo you and beat you at checkers and everything else. You know, this guy's got to win. He's just got. He's he's an overachiever. He's alpha to the max. And and I think uh, we all know people like this, and and they, we get weary with them very quickly. Uh, so it's very admirable. They're fun characters. And that's what I love about Kirk, and that's what I love about the first Star Trek, is, uh, and why I'm happy Paramount went back to the first Star Trek for the new movie series. Because these characters are flawed. No character is more flawed than Spock. Look at his inner conflict. My God. That's why teenagers relate to him so much. Because that's who we are when we're teenagers. We don't know if we're supposed to do this or if we're supposed to do that. We're afraid to show who we really are because we're not old enough to realize, we haven't been around long enough to realize that everybody's screwed up. It's not just us. So we're trying to hide the fact that we're screwed up. You know, and it's like, remember when we you were young and we were all growing up and it was like, you didn't realize that other people thought these things. And then you find out you're talking to a friend and it's like, oh, really? You, you think those things too? Wow. And and so that's Spock. He's, he's this character who's in conflict with himself constantly. What a fun character to write for. As a writer, I mean, this is this is something you can sink your teeth into. And McCoy is uh, he's great because McCoy also has such passion, but he's flawed. He's wrong. He's racist. He is. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God, he is. Yes. Uh, you could not get away with a character like that today. Well, you could, but but he would not. He'd be an unsavory character. But of course, back then, you know, in America, they didn't see him as being racist. They were laughing along with everything he said. But he, he's vicious to Spock. He's really quite cruel. And, and Kirk, you know, is a swaggering uh, uh, dictator. Uh, but that's what's delightful about these characters from a writer's point of view. And I think from an audience point of view, too. And from an actor's point of view, for those actors who play these characters. So, yeah, there's a lot of cleanup work to be done after Kirk. But that's the joy of watching a guy like this. Now, you guys can disagree with me. Now, I wrote, I did a little bit of work on, on Next Generation. You know, I, I gave him a couple springboards and did that Sara thing. And, but I never really like that show as much. It got better. I mean, when the board came along, it really started cooking. But the first few seasons, I really had trouble with that, and that's when I was around there. But um, because Captain Picard was just too damn civilized for me, and everybody on the crew liked everybody else on the crew. What? That's, that's no fun. <laughs> Not from a writer's point of view. The writers on that show in the beginning really had problems with this. And yeah. I didn't realize that they felt the way I felt because nobody had the courage to say, I feel this way until after the show was over. And then you'd run into some of these people and they'd say, yeah, that was, that was kind of tough working on that show. They loved the first one. We all grew up on the first one. And then you get in there and, and Gene was kind of into his utopia thing at that point. And 
you'd, I'd go in and pitch, and, and I'd say, well, here's a story about lust. And he said, well, we don't have that anymore. Well, here's a story about greed. Well, we don't have that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you have? <laughs> you have 50 minutes of boring conversation, you know? And, and But then he got sick, and he, he kind of backed out of the show, and, and you know, Rick Berman came in, and then it, then it started getting more and more interesting as it went along. But yeah. but uh, TOS was interesting from the get-go for me. The characters were, were there. They had sharp edges. They were flawed characters. And that's what you want in a movie and a TV show. That's what makes it good. Now, you've said uh, that, um, you know, Gene Kuhn obviously was, was a really big fan of the idea of uh, Kirk being... Uh, the snake who goes into the Garden of Eden and, and messes up the society. Um, but I imagine the network may not have been all that tremendously fond of that idea. Were there any notes from them about uh, Kirk being Satan? Yeah, and uh, not not really opposing it too badly, uh, surprisingly so. But yeah, Stan Robertson uh, did have some concerns about uh, not offending any religious groups and that type of thing, uh, and so tread lightly here. Uh, of course, broadcast standards had lots of concerns about the costuming and and the the sex education lessons that were going to be given, and the, and even that scene that seems so innocent today, but broadcast standards was very concerned about that scene in the in the teepee or tent or whatever it was. The, uh, the hut uh, where uh, the yeoman and, and Kirk and they're all they're putting her on the spot. Celestia Arnell's character. Well, they, well, they fixed it with all the the little music that was going on, though. Yeah, they made it cute. <laughs> but but there was actually somebody from Broadcast Standards who was there that day, keeping an eye on things, making sure it didn't get too naughty. Because they can make you cut the lines out of the script or or, or water them down, but then you could add the sizzle right back in there with by the actor giving it a little look or something. So when there was a scene that was talking about sex, like that one, broadcast standards would usually send somebody to the set to stand there and watch like a hawk and make sure they didn't get too naughty. And uh, and same thing with uh, uh, certain costumes, like uh, in Who Mourns for Adonis. They they had somebody there keeping an eye on Leslie Parrish to make sure that uh, you didn't see anything that you weren't supposed to see. And she was glued into that costume. You know, they, they had to use double-sided tape and glue to keep her in that thing. Uh, so NBC was very worried about Star Trek. Star Trek was not a show that they, they they lost a lot of sleep over having that show on, which is why it got canceled. It had nothing to do with the ratings. You've got book one. I yeah, like all the uh, all the Nielsen ratings. Everybody's always had these rumors about the ratings and, and saying Star Trek was a failure on NBC. Well, just go look through book one there. I've got the ratings for every single episode, and, and there's quite a few nights where it's winning its time slot, and it's almost always NBC's top-rated show of the night. Well, guess what? In season two, it takes a hit because it lost a lot of its audience when they moved it to Friday because all the college kids and the high school kids are out at school functions, and they're not home, and we didn't have video recorders back then. Yeah. So you're missing it. But... Uh, but it still was NBC's top-rated show of the night, and yet they tried to cancel it until they got hundreds of thousands of letters protesting it, and so they moved it to 10 p.m., and it was still doing well for them. But it was their top-rated Friday night show and their top-rated Thursday night show. So it's not true that they canceled it because the ratings weren't good. You don't cancel your, your 
top-rated show of the night. Yeah. You cancel the bad shows, and you put other shows around the top-rated show. Uh, they canceled it because Gene Roddenberry was not controllable, and the stories that he was telling were too hot to touch for network TV back then, especially NBC. Uh, so it was uh, it was touchy area, and stories like the Apple from from the uh, the whole man-serving machine to the sex education to the God themes and everything else was very very risque. For 1967 that that does show a lot about the the producers and stuff that they like gene the genes refused to put aside their you know their conviction to make this such a great show because you know had they kept going under budget and not pushed the censors it could have you know stayed on forever it would have had its five-year mission yeah but it wouldn't have been a very good mission. Yeah. Oh, John D.F. Black told me the reason they said five-year mission, and he wrote that opening monologue with Roddenberry. Matter of fact, John Black was the one who came up with Space the Final Frontier. He came up with the first line. And, uh, and the idea of the five-year mission was they wanted it to stay on for five years so they would have a, a guaranteed rerun package because that's what it took back then. Star Trek broke the rules. It only had three seasons. And yet it went into five nights a week around the country on independent stations and was a top-rated show throughout all the 1970s and into the 80s uh, because people loved the show so much. But it, it was a little short. Usually you had to have 100-plus episodes. Uh, so, yeah, they, they, uh, these two, the two genes didn't budge on what they wanted to do. They, they were very determined that they wanted to do the stories they wanted to tell. And if the show got canceled, it got canceled. And and they had a falling out, which I talk about in book two. And that's that's bound to happen because if you've got a personality like you guys, if you got a personality that that is, I'm joking when I say you guys. I'm just teasing you. But if you got a personality <laughs> that says, I want to run this show this way, and I don't care what happens. If if you're not going to let me run it the way I want to run it, then then cancel the show. I'm willing to live with that, but I'm not willing to live with compromising the type of stories I want to tell and so forth. That's a great leader, unless you want a long-running show. Then you kind of wish he would stop it and, and behave himself. Well, both genes were like this. So when you have two people like that, and, and both of them are alpha, and both of them are trying to run the show, somebody's going to have to go away at some point, and it's not going to be Roddenberry. Well, it's good that they, they stuck to that, though, because... Like you said here, if if they had kind of played by NBC's rules completely and made sure they came in under budget, maybe maybe Star Trek would have run for the five years and we would have gotten the full five-year mission. I don't think we would be sitting around here almost 50 years later watching these again and again and talking about them again and again, and it wouldn't have spun off the films and the other series that it did because it's the the value of the content that they created was the key to it. And it didn't matter if there were five seasons of that or three or even one, you know, it's possible if there had only been one season and we had 29 episodes of the show, people still would have, have been hooked on it because the it's, it's one of the rare shows of that time period that didn't underestimate its audience. And obviously the studio underestimated the audience as they did. You know, and I still think they do today in general, but especially back then. And, you know, thankfully, both of the genes, even though they did have their, their falling out in the end, stuck to it. Yeah, it, it, 
and, and it got worse each year with Gene Roddenberry. Uh, NBC had a problem with him before Star Trek with the lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, they canceled the lieutenant uh, because Roddenberry wanted to tell a story about racism in the military called To Set It Right was the name of the episode. And the lieutenant was uh, about the Marine Corps during peacetime, and it was filmed down at Camp Pendleton here in California. And they got all the Marines on the base to play extras for free, and they got to use the tanks and the trucks and the, the, the housing and everything else. So they got all this production value for free. And Gene Roddenberry wanted to tell this story that NBC objected to, and, uh, and the military objected to it, the Pentagon objected to it. And Roddenberry went ahead and made it anyway. And then he got the NA, uh, NAACP to, to go after NBC to force them to show it because NBC wasn't going to air it. It's okay, you shot it. Your studio's not going to be happy with you because we're not going to air it, so we're not going to pay for it. And so he, he went to the, uh, uh, these different organizations and got them to put pressure on NBC to air the episode, which the network did. And then the Pentagon immediately dropped out uh, for backing the show, and the network canceled the show, even though the ratings were okay. So Roddenberry was dead in the water. He really, you wouldn't think he would have been able to get another show on the air, because this town is very unforgiving. But Desi Lu, and this is all in book one, Desi Lu wanted to own some series. That's what built the studio, was owning their own show, I Love Lucy. And they needed shows. And they hired Herb Solo, uh, an Oscar cast to find some shows, and the, the shows they found was uh, Star Trek and Mission Impossible. Those shows ended up bankrupting the studio, and you'll read in book two how Lucille Ball had to sell her studio to Paramount, or to Gulf Western Corporation that owned Paramount, and it broke her heart. But Star Trek and Mission Impossible together, but mostly Star Trek, had bankrupt the studio and destroyed a studio. And and uh, and it got worse, and, and Roddenberry kept fighting with NBC. And so NBC kept trying to cancel Star Trek and then would move it to a worse time slot so they could get rid of it. And, uh, you know, Fred uh, Freiberger, who produced the third season, he was in shock when he came in and agreed to take over for Roddenberry. Uh, and the first meeting he had with NBC, he was he was stunned by the way Gene Roddenberry was treating the NBC executives that he was so disrespectful to them. And Fred you know, said, you know, I, I, you don't treat a network like that. And he was thinking, what have I gotten myself into? I'll never work in this business again. And he said they really didn't cooperate with him. Uh, even though Gene walked, uh, NBC would not cooperate with him throughout the production of the third year until just about the end of it, when they finally started to realize he wasn't their enemy and that he was willing to cooperate with the network. But you could say, to follow up on your point, you could say that the third season might not be as good as the others because, one, it didn't have the budget, but also it didn't have Gene Roddenberry there. But third, uh, it wasn't trying to buck the system as much. So some of the fire was gone. Although he did make a couple very controversial episodes, Fred Fred, Fred Freiberger, uh, Plato's Stepchildren with the first interracial kiss and yeah. Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. You know, with the guys that were half white and half black, and so he did. He did a few episodes. He did one on overpopulation called the Mark of Gideon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he did. He did. Uh, he, he pushed it. He pushed it a little bit to the limit, but not to the point to where it would alienate the network. But at that point, NBC was already done with Star Trek as far as they were concerned. 
They wanted nothing to do with the show that had come to them from Gene Roddenberry. Well, we were talking earlier about how, uh, you know, one one of the components of this episode is the idea of, um, and, and something which is, is there throughout the show, is the idea of the Enterprise and Kirk in particular going to these planets where they might uh, be worshiping, you know, something as a deity and saying, hey, guys, you know, that's just a, a building or, or whatever or a computer. And uh, maybe you should destroy that and start thinking for yourselves. And, you know, it's very well documented that, uh, um, you know, Gene Roddenberry was was an atheist and, and you know, this was a, sort of an, an atheistic mythology. I'm just wondering, like, did did Gene Kuhn share those beliefs, or where where did he fall on all this stuff? Gene Kuhn never, uh, in all of his memos. Now you know he passed away in 1974, and so he really didn't give very many interviews about Star Trek. I mean, the whole the first convention was in 75 or 76. So uh, even though the, sh- the show was an immediate hit, I mean, it was a hit when it was on NBC, as the ratings now prove, but it was a huge hit in syndication. But with the conventions coming in the mid-'70s, that's when it really exploded, and that's when everybody started getting interviewed and people were seeking everybody out uh, that were involved with the original show to find out what they thought. And Gene Kuhn had passed away at that point. So he never really got an opportunity to talk and share his feelings. But through these three books, we get to meet him, through his memos, and uh, he wrote 20-page memos on each draft of each script. Sometimes his memos, he'd write a 20-page memo on a 10-page story outline. <laughs> and, well. and there's a great memo in book two where, I'm trying to think of what, what episode it is. It, it may be uh, John T. Dugan may have written it for Return to Tomorrow, but he says, do not send me any more memos. Pick up the phone and call me. I will not read another memo from you. Because he would just go on forever with his dictaphone and, and go through the script page by page saying, I, I don't like this or this could be better or whatever. And he was very polite about it, but but he would... Uh, uh, and you guys got a taste of that in book one from the episodes he produced. Uh, and, and so in those memos, I never saw any indication that he was an atheist. What I did see is that he got very excited over story concepts that talked about, that were honest, and talked about humanity and the human condition and, and the faults of humanity and, and in ways that hadn't been done on TV before. And that would excite him. And he would get a hold of a concept that some writer had brought in, and he wouldn't let go. He would fight for it. So that's how the two genes were very much alike. But Gene Roddenberry uh, had definitely had a political agenda. Gene Kuhn really didn't have a political agenda, but his agenda was to protect a good story or protect a good statement that was within a story. And he would fight, fight to death for it. Uh, but Roddenberry had his own agenda about what he wanted to do. And this was one episode where the two genes were in absolute agreement on. Um, one of you had asked earlier, uh, or said, so Gene Kuhn was running the show at that point. And in a way, he was. Roddenberry had stepped away uh, to do a Tarzan script, which never got made, uh, and a Robin Hood script, which never got made, during the second season. So he was kind of in and out. 
And and so he was kind of leaving it to Gene Roddenberry during the second year, like he left it to Fred uh, Freiberger during the third year. And but he was there for the uh, the pitch sessions. So when the writers would come in and pitch the stories, it was usually both genes would be present. And and Roddenberry had a little more say there than Gene Kuhn did on which stories they were going to buy and, and develop. But then Gene Roddenberry would step away and he would let Gene Kuhn do the work. And Roddenberry would send memos in from wherever he was. He would read the various drafts and he would make sure that he, he got his opinion in. But uh, he left it to Gene Kuhn to do most of the hands-on work during the latter part of the first season and throughout the entire second season. Uh, even the episodes that he's not credited on, that say produced by John Meredith Lucas, uh, almost every one of those scripts, all but two of them, were developed by Gene Kuhn. And so even, at, even after he's left the show and you're reading book two, you're going to see all these big memos from Gene Kuhn on episodes like... Um, Return to Tomorrow and uh, Obsession and and so forth that say produced by John Meredith Lucas because Kuhn was in there while they were being developed and rewriting the scripts. I think what you say about Gene L. Kuhn's position of protecting the statements and the stories and all is important because Mike, you're asking if if he was atheist as Gene Roddenberry was in his view, but I think what I see there is the value of and it's important for science fiction and it's why Star Trek has endured, I think is you don't have to be atheist or have a religious view or whatever to tell the story. It's about raising the question so that the viewer can right. ask the question for themselves and figure out where they stand. And I think you can be atheist and still tell a story that's centered on a religious belief and, and not try to push an agenda either way and let the viewer figure out where they personally come down on it. Well, sure. Well, the, the whole idea of, uh, uh, of Hollywood, uh, the, the, the concept that built America, modern America, uh, post-World War II America, which actually started getting built up in the 1930s, came from Hollywood. People were pattering their lives over what they were seeing on TV and in the movies. So all those sitcoms, you know, Father Knows Best and Donna Reed and the Dick Van Dyke Show and everything, you know, we'd watch those shows and our parents would watch those shows and say, well, this is how our house has to look and this is how we're supposed to behave. Leave it to Beaver. We're supposed to behave this way. We're supposed to dress this way. We're supposed to make our kids drink milk with every meal because that's what the cleavers do. Mm. You know, stuff like that. That came, You know where all that came from? And I'm talking It's a Wonderful Life. And I'm talking uh, things like that. Um, it, was, it was mostly um, uh, Jewish people because, because Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Harry Cohn, who owned Columbia Pictures and everything, um, uh, the Jews were the ones who really developed the Hollywood system. Paramount, all these studios were run by, by Jewish studio bosses. And they wanted to create the image of America for Christian America. So you had all these movies about Christianity that were being produced by people who weren't Christians. So Hollywood's always done that. Hollywood's always been able to create an image, and that image would influence society and influence the way we look, because we always imitate what we see on TV. You know, that's how we know. That's how we know how to dress. Yeah what the latest fashions are, how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to look. We're copying what we see on TV. It's not copying us. 
we're copying it. And and so with Roddenberry, you know, he didn't really believe in God. He was turned off by religion at a young age, but he always believed in questioning authority. And and he his 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 problem wasn't so much with the concept of God. His problem was with man's interpretation of God, man right. speaking on behalf of God, and that's that was the theme that you kept seeing in so many of his episodes. It wasn't that there's anything wrong in believing in God, but don't put on too much faith in that that pastor or that priest because they're human and they have human faults. And do you really want to trust your children around them or whatever, you know? So he would see that stuff growing up. And he would see that in the military. He'd see it in the police department as well. So he had a big problem with authority. And, and he didn't try to mask it. And the older he got in later years, he even became more open about that. But you definitely see that in Star Trek episodes. Gene Kuhn did not have that issue. Uh, but Gene Kuhn loved the concept of the apple and a lot of these other episodes. Not because he was bucking anything, he just he just loved it. What he loved about the immunity syndrome, and, and again, that's one that says produced by John Meredith Lucas, but Gene Kuhn started that one, and, and what he loved about that concept was that man's place in this universe is to serve the universe, and in this case, to be an antibody, to go into this giant one-celled organism and be the disease that enters into that. And in a way... We were the disease that entered into the the, the apple. Right, similarly, yeah. You know, and he he loved that. He was tickled to death by that idea. Now that wasn't because he didn't have religion, or because he uh, uh, was trying to shake anybody up. He was just stimulated by the intellectual conversation and, and debate within that type of a story. He would be a fun guy to have conversations with. Yeah, the, the intellectual debate is uh, it is the, the strength of TOS. You you know, people sometimes these days have trouble getting past the the visuals of the show, but um, th that element, intellectual debate element, is definitely there. Yeah, and you'll see that passion in his memos. Uh, I sample his memos. Obviously, I'm not going to put a 20 page memo in there because every one of his memos was that long. <laughs> My God, it this would be a 20 book series. Uh, so I have to sample the memos, but I'll, I'll put in a paragraph. Or, or several sentences of each memo, and you'll see him really even outdoing what you've seen in book one, and Bob Justman outdoing what you saw from him in book one, as they're becoming more comfortable and more accustomed to using these uh, dictaphones, dictation machines, and and doing these memos back and forth. Uh, the the humor becomes more apparent, and uh, they get funnier and funnier with their memos, but also they be they become more open. You're going to be shocked by a few memos from Gene Roddenberry in book two. Some of the things he admits to Gene Kuhn about his feeling about women and sex and so forth in some of the memos that he writes. And I like Gene Roddenberry. And it says right on the front of the book, this is a story that Gene Roddenberry and Robert H. Justman wanted you to know. And that's true. Both of these men invited me and, he, and recommended that if I did this book, that I use the show files that I dig through all this stuff that they saved. And they wanted these memos to be preserved. That's why they saved them. Nobody on any other show did that. They, they 70 boxes of this stuff. And they so they saved all these things because they were proud of the work they did and the type of stories they were telling and the fact that their stories were about something. There were these great statements being made. And so they saved all that. Well, they, they knew, 
Gene Roddenberry knew there were letters in there and memos in there where he kind of let his dark side out. He knew that there were some memos in there that where he was drunk when he di dictated them and, and opening up about some things that maybe he wouldn't have. All that stuff was in there. He knew it. So I don't feel that I, I betrayed him in any way by sampling these things. My, my job, I felt, was to just honestly walk everybody through the making of Star Trek and to use the show files to do that, which Gene and Bob both said, do it. And so I did it. Uh, so you will see uh, a few of, of his dark moments in some of these memos. And so the second book here is going to be out March 1st, I believe, correct? Season two? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, first week of March, and uh, I, I think they'll be probably uh, doing some pre-ordering and uh, right around the time, uh, right around now, because we're we're in mid-February, I think, mm -hmm. and and so uh, you might be able to pre-order it at the publisher's website, which uh, is these are the voyages books dot com, these are the voyages books dot com, and you'll be able to get an autographed hardback copy there, and you'll be able to get it before you can get it from Amazon not trying to compete with Amazon. I'm not trying to compete with anybody. I just want you to buy the book. <laughs> and that's what the only place you'll be able to get it for the first month that it's out. Then it'll be on Amazon. You know, both today and when you were with us last time, we, we've talked quite a bit about season three as well. Do you have an ETA on the season three book at this point? Yeah, uh, early fall, probably September. Okay. And it's done. Uh, I mean, mostly done. It, it, you know, if I die tomorrow, somebody's going to have to come up and clean it up and finish it. But so, but all three of them were done before we even put the first one out. I didn't even want to start releasing them until yeah. the entire story had been written. Originally, it was going to be one book. It just got so big that the, the publishers started laughing at me. They called it the brick. <laughs> it was 1,500 pages, and it's even bigger than that now. Uh, so uh, they said, well, we're going to have to split this up. And then they said, well, maybe we'll make it two books. And then they said, well, it was three seasons. We better let it go three seasons. And I said, can, then can I make it bigger? And they said, all right. Okay. So that's my <laughs> first book is 680 pages now. And, and this book is over 500. So, three. so they almost wanted to pull a Lord of the Rings on you where they initially wanted to do two movies for three books, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they did pull the reins in me. Uh, on, on book one, they told me I could not go over 600 pages. And so if you look at your copy of, of the first book, it's exactly 600 pages. I, th I think it says 500, 580 pages or so, but the, the front matter is 20 pages, and those pages aren't numbered. You know, it's Roman numerals. Yeah. So if you add those together, it's exactly 600 pages. And and so I stuffed it everything in there the best I could. I made the print as small as I could get away with just to get everything in there because uh, I didn't want to cut stuff out. I love those memos, and I just wanted to put in as much as I could. They tell you, Mark, this came in at 604 pages, and you said, oh, just rip the cover off. We don't need a cover on this. Let's just <laughs> – Oh, I, I did. You know, you, you, know, you, want, to, you want to laugh. Uh, I'll tell you. I don't mind you having to laugh at the publisher's expense. They, they, they had made the cover. And they asked me as I was editing the book and working with the proof proofer, who should have been run out of town on rails, and working with the proofer, and and uh, they said, so so what is what is the page count because we're making the cover? We got to know how big the spine has to be. And uh -huh. I said, well, I don't know yet. And they said, well, we got to know. And I said, well, how how big can I make it? And they said, six hundred pages. I said, okay. So it came out a little bigger than that. So I made the index a little smaller. The, the font. <laughs> I somehow squeezed it down to 600 pages. So I was literally, it's like so, somebody giving you a suit 
that doesn't fit. And so you got to go on a diet to fit into the suit that they gave you. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know and, how you feel. And, I've, I mean, for, for many, many years, I worked in magazines. And, yeah. And so, yeah. There you go. You're, I mean, word count, well, and, and page counts, cramming everything yeah, in. Yeah, TV, it's got to, it's got to fit into an hour, which means, yeah. uh, you know, 50 minutes of runtime and or less now. And uh, so, yeah, you got you, I'm used to it, too. I, I am. But uh, and the, the irony of it is I didn't like the cover. So it's like so I, I made this book fit into this cover and it's not even a good cover. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like the cover on the revised draft. And, and they, I said, look, man, you guys didn't proof this very well. I'm getting letters, God forbid. And it's not that I know, but, you know, I'm the guy who can't spell. But you're supposed to be able to spell. I, I'm a TV writer. I never met a TV writer who could spell. So I said, you guys were supposed to clean this up better. So I said, you got to make this right. And they said, okay, we will. I said, can I have a better cover? And they said, okay, you can have a better cover. And I said, well, since you're read, you're going to do a new print run then or, or do a different draft for the new print run, can I make it a little longer? And they said, okay, make it longer. Because by then they had already gotten a lot of reviews, and all the reviews said that it was good, and not one review said it was too long. As a matter of fact, quite a few reviews said they were sorry it wasn't longer. Yeah, I've read so, those so, too, yeah, about this book, yeah. Yeah, and so they said, go ahead. If you got more stuff, put it in. And so now it's 680 pages. And, and uh, I, I mentioned this last time we talked. I don't, I don't know if we mentioned it in this show. If, if we did, you can snip it out. But um, uh, the publisher's been really stand-up about it. If you, if you go to their website, theseofthevoyagesbooks.com, a special website they created just for this book, um, there's a contact button. And if you send, and they're, they're selling the revised version for only 25 bucks, which is 15 less than they charged when it first came out. And um, a more civilized price, I think. And if you go there and tell them you bought the first edition, whether you bought it from them or at the at the convention when we were at the conventions, or if you bought it at uh, from Amazon, you tell them where you bought it, and they can find out. They can verify everything's on computer. Of course, <laughs> they know everything about you. Uh, and and they, if they see you're telling the truth, they will sell it to you for even less. So you can get it pretty pretty inexpensively. That's how much they want it to cooperate and get you the book. So there Excellent. you go. So nobody's trying to rip anybody off. We're trying to get just trying to get you a clean version of the book. And those originals that you have, hang on to them because there's only 3,000 of those. So they'll probably be worth something next month on eBay. <laughs> Always going up in value. All right. Great. Well, it's thanks for all the inside information about the Apple and in the rest of TOS and, and what was going on there. And Mark, if people want to find out more about you and other things that you're working on right now, where should they go for that? MarkCushman.com, M-A-R-C-C-U-S-H-M-A-N.com, or they can just go to theseofthevoyagesbooks.com and they're putting up lots of information about me, bio, interviews, where I'm at, uh, and uh, so forth. So book signings and things like that. Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining us tonight. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks. I love talking to Mark Cushman. I love it so much. <laughs> I just want to talk to him all day. Can I just like take him to work with me and just talk to him all day while I'm trying to work? Maybe so. Let's talk to him. Maybe we can we can arrange something like that, like a little a little bobblehead of Mark. But it has a microphone, and he can actually call in and just talk to you through <laughs> that on your desk. 
I would I would love that so much. That <laughs> he just he's just got all this Star Trek stuff and it's all right there. Yeah. It's all right at the top of his head. Like we we don't do any editing. Like he's just here's this fact. This person wrote it. He went through so many drafts, you know, and then this actor came along and he was also in this and this and this. I mean, he just he it's like he wrote down just things that he memorized. Yeah. In well, the books. It's total immersion, right? Doing research. This level of research for so long to write these books, you really do become totally immersed in this. I'm not entirely unconvinced that he is not a time traveler from the 60s <laughs> or has the ability to go back to the 60s and gather all this information and then come back forward. Maybe he is memory alpha in humanoid form, just walking around. Mr. Atos. Yeah, yeah. He is Mr. Atos. That's right. He found a way to just put all the knowledge that's contained in Memory Alpha right into him. And then he uh, he got a starship and he came to Earth, changed his name. Except, to for, the stuff that, that, except for the stuff that Larry Nemechek is saying currently, because <laughs> that's not in Memory Alpha yet. Oh, that's right. <laughs> we, that's not in the website, Memory Alpha. That's right. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> it will be soon. The fictional version. Yeah. I'm talking about the fictional Memory Alpha. Yes. Right. All right. Well, yeah, it was great talking to Mark again today and talking about the Apple this time, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Futurama Commentary. Shatner is so good in this. I mean, I know it's it's uh, seems weird to say that. It seems weird to say that a guy is good at playing himself. But Shatner excels at that. Earl Grey. Q. We've all got our claws up right now. Well, I don't know. I don't know if he was scared of her. Like he he put out his own hand. Did he snap her to death <laughs> with a West Side Story. <laughs> yeah, West Side Story. <laughs> when you're a Q, you're a Q all the way. The Ready Room. Damage. That's what made Archer's next statement so awesome. And I'm not rationalizing anything. I know full well what I'm doing. Yeah. Like he he understands the ethical ramifications that he's taking. He knows what's going to weigh on his conscience now. The orb. Runabouts. It definitely feels more like the old west. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're basically in a covered wagon instead of like a train. But so. a covered wagon that can go warp 5. To the journey. Living witness rewrite. This always messed with me when I was younger, like the, the the retinas or the nerve endings behind his eyes are dissolving. That's just messed up. Yeah, what? Warp 5. Malcolm Reed. It almost feels like the writers thought it was fun to just keep throwing facts in and dialogue about him. You know, usually in the show Bible, you want to see people do things and they just say, oh, we'll, have some, we'll have this person say this. We'll have a whole episode about how he loves pineapple, but he's allergic to it. <laughs> Commentary, Trek stars. Robert Hewitt Wolf, River World. But when you end up at the end of your thing, having gone from, I'm on a beach and I don't know how or why, to, no, don't take the glowing rock and put it in the spaceship, that will destroy the planet, I guess. That is too far too quickly. Melodic tricks. Five musical favorites. And to see the Klingon ship dissolve in, in the lightning effect with that music playing, you know, at loud volumes... It was it was basically the a geek's dream. Literary treks. Spock reflections. And my favorite is when Amanda goes, 
I will never get used to a Vulcan scolding. <laughs> right. You know, we wouldn't take it as a scolding at all. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows for you. And you'll find them in a wide variety of places, including on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can download or stream from the website. And also, I am happy to say that the MP3 feeds are almost here. So everyone who is listening, especially our Android listeners who have been wanting dedicated MP3 feeds instead of enhanced those will be available very soon. So uh, cool. go go grab the shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. All right, Drew, you told me in the other side of the room... The other side of the room. ...that you and Mike received a special note today. Yes, we did. Uh, the The world of small publishing is, is nebulous, so uh, it's been uncertain as to exactly when book two would be released of These Are the Voyages. So uh, Jacob Brown's Press has big news. The second volume in the These Are the Voyages trilogy of books will be available for pre-order through their website on Monday, March 3rd. The target publication date is March 25th, and the book orders will be filled soon after that date. And you can go to www.thesearethevoyagesbooks.com in order to uh, to order to submit your pre-order. Yeah, starting Monday. Great. Next Monday. Yeah. So this just came in when we recorded the feature with Mark. We weren't quite sure yet, you know, when that pre-order was going to become available. So now we know for sure. And uh, again, with the URL at the end, that's books.com plural. It sometimes yes. throws me off. Like I think of it as book. Uh, for some reason in my head when I think about this URL, but it's books, plural, yeah. These are the voyages books. It's all plural. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it makes perfect sense. Not this is the voyage book. Right. <laughs> now we're really confusing everyone about what this URL yes, is. Yes, <laughs> sorry, I do that. <laughs> so yeah, go check check that site out and you can pre-order the book there. All right. Well, if you'd like to share your thoughts on anything we talked about today on the show, whether or not you think those were no-win scenarios for Kirk, anything about the Apple, or if you have questions from the fleet, you know, if there's anything about Star Trek that you want us to talk about during news, if you have a question, you want to know our thoughts on it, you can send that to us as well. Go to trek.film slash contact. There's a form there. If you want to send us just general thoughts on the show, choose the ready room and that'll come to us by email. If you want to send us questions from the fleet, there is another option on there specifically for that. So just choose that and send us your questions. And we'd love to hear from you and uh, talk about your message here on the show. Also, you can send us a voicemail through the website if you prefer to do that. We'd love to hear your voice. Or you can go to our forums at truck.fm slash forums to talk to us and other listeners about the show. And on social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And you'll find us on Twitter under username trekfm, where we're always tweeting away about Star Trek. Now, Landrew, when you're not spying on people making out through the bushes... Where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E. They can also find me on Standard Orbit here on the network with Mike Schindler, uh, who you, you heard in the feature. And uh, on there, we talk about TOS and uh, characters, concepts, and cliches that uh, you may or may not be familiar with about TOS. That's the three C's of Standard Orbit, right? Yes, it is. 
All right, excellent. And um, if you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, and on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, you'll find me with Matthew Rushing on Literary Treks, where we talk Star Trek books and comics. And yes, Landry, we're going to have to dig out this follow-up to the Apple, as I said, <laughs> and uh, look into that. Do that on that show. And uh, we interview authors on there as well. So uh, really, really interesting kind of behind the scenes to the literary universe that are on literary treks. And then Matthew and I also do The Orb together, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. And you'll find me on Warp 5, where we talk exclusively about Enterprise. And then I also have my own interview show, Matterstream, where I talk to scientists and writers and actors and creatives and all sorts of people about topics that are either inspired by Star Trek or loosely related to Star Trek. So check out all those shows if you're interested. One other thing we'd like to ask you to do, if you have a chance, if you have an extra minute and you enjoy the show, drop by iTunes and leave us a star rating and review. It does help other people find the show as they're searching the iTunes store for Star Trek podcasts. There are a lot of podcasts out there these days. It's not necessarily the easiest thing to find, especially since we don't put Star Trek in the name of our shows. So we would really appreciate it if you drop by and left us a rating and left us a review and let us know what you think about the show. One more thing you can do to help us keep the ready room coming to you every week is to support our sponsor. That's audible.com. As we talked about in the news segment today, you can get the Kobayashi Maru book or anything you want absolutely free just by trying Audible. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm to get your free trial. If at the end of that, you decide not to stick with Audible, you get to keep that audiobook. That's yours. So there's nothing to lose. And your support of Audible does help us keep the ready room coming to you every week. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank Audible for supporting the ready room and the network. And there is one more thing that you can do to help us keep the show coming to you, and that's to make a donation to the network. If you go over to trek.afilm slash donate, you'll find original alien illustrations there. You can get them as buttons or art prints, and you can mix and match. And we have different levels of contribution for you to choose from as well. And your support helps us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring all of our shows to you every week. So we really thank you for helping us keep the ready room going. All right, Drew. Well, it was another great show. I'm glad you could join me today. I've got to go right now. I'm going to wander back through the jungle and see if I can find Akuta because I really want to have my face painted and have my hair done. Yep. Well, it's time to stick an apple in it because the ready room is done. 